Welcome, everyone. This is episode 17 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I'm with Jonathan Schechter on Twitter. He's at Shecky Green. Jonathan, welcome. Hello, Brandon. Thank you. It's been it's been a long time. I had to reacquaint myself with the with the bio. I couldn't believe that it was 1990 that you graduated from school. You've always you haven't aged a year. You've been you have one of those minds that just doesn't that doesn't age. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm old now. I'm up there. I'm getting up there. But okay. all good. So take me back to to 1980s Harvard. You have at that point, what was peak griminess of Harvard Square? What was what <laughs> was it? Was it early 90s? Or? Or was it late 80s? You know, I got to Harvard in the fall of 86. So I was there from 86 to 90. And yeah, Harvard Square was a, uh, a melting pot of alternative culture mixed with, you know, Harvard, obviously the, the dominant presence of what's there, but then there's, there was a little sort of pit area you, you might be familiar with, like right there that- Sure, the newsstand. Right by the newsstand, right, that little sort of circle. And there you would see all kinds of alternative youth culture, kind of like a melting pot, like, you know, punk rock, hip hop, the very early stages of hip hop and, uh, you know, hippie, hippie culture, you know, sort of like, so those, all those things kind of coexisted, but that was the same in other cities too. I'm from Philadelphia. That's my hometown. So in Philly, the same thing, we have South street and South street was the melting pot of all the alternative youth culture. So it, it was a similar vibe to that, but it was cool. You're a very humble guy. I I've, I've known you and followed you for a long time. You're a very humble guy. So I'm going to have to give my version of your musical career highlights, and I'm going to force you to fill in some of the interesting <laughs> misses. I'm going to force, I'm going to force, okay. I'm going to force you. Okay. So you founded the source, you co-founded the source magazine, which was the, the go-to hip hop magazine of the era, you uh, had a popular feature on in that magazine called uh, unsigned, unsigned hype. As part of that, you, you discovered notorious BIG. Um, You, you have, and this was quite funny because You've, as I said, very humble. You've never had a braggocious word uttered. It, and I, I was relieved, actually, to see in your Twitter feed that on 420 Day, you noted the, you noted the 10 most interesting people that you had lighted up a joint with. And among them was uh, Tupac Shakur, Biggie, and pretty much eight of the other top 20 uh, uh, stars of the era. So that was, I, I found that quite fascinating. That's why they hang out with me. Cause I don't talk a lot of shit or brag, you know, that's just not, you know, I try to live by example in that sense. And, and I always like to hang out with people that are low key. There are a lot of cool people in the music and entertainment world, you know, that aren't the type that want to brag. There also are the types that want to brag. So it's, you get it for every, you know, for every laid back cool one, you get like a Kanye. There's a balance kind of of both. So, you know, maybe I could do a little more of the Kanye, but 
But anyway, um, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been lucky to, to hang around and be around a lot of basically every superstar in hip hop, particularly of the um, earlier generation. You know, I got involved in hip hop in the 80s. So I, like, as I was saying, I grew up in Philly. So, you know, Philly hip hop started for me in like 83, 84, around that time. And, you know, you, you covered a lot of ground in that question, but, you know, when it comes to the source, that started about five years later, you know, roughly around 1980, summer of 1988 is when the source started. Um, and that was while I was an undergraduate at Harvard, along with my partner at the time named Dave Mays, and he was also a Harvard student. And that was, you know, sort of a project that we started as a side project, you know, while we were still students and it evolved into a, you know, a, a full-fledged business and a, and a magazine, a very influential magazine, probably the most influential in hip hop history. Is it fair to say also that the, that the magazine stand in Harvard square was an influence? You'd kind of hang, hang around oh, yeah. there and, and you'd be like, all right, what's missing. They've got pretty much everything covered. We're going to. That, that's a great question. It was an influence. Um, I used to go there and read, um, NME, the New Music Express, which is a British publication. Um, and also there was Spin existed at the time, Rolling Stone and The Village Voice. Those were kind of the core of the earliest hip hop journalism, if you want to call it that. It was, there was a handful of great writers who kind of came before us. Um, it includes uh, John Leland, Harry Allen, Nelson George, um, a number of others. But they were my inspiration. They were the ones that, you know, I, I, would, I was craving something that didn't exist, which was I was a giant fan of hip hop, totally immersed in it, loved, you know, so much of it, knew so much about it, was so into it, but I wanted more. And so I was craving that kind of deeper level of knowledge and information. And there were only these handful of writers providing it. Billboard was another place where you'd see some writing. Um, so there was like only those four or five publications. I would go to that newsstand in Harvard Square and soak it up. And at the time also, Dave and I were starting a college radio state, you know, a radio show on WHRB, which is Harvard Station. And that was just beginning. And so we were kind of, you know, craving that. And that's when it all kind of came together in that there was a niche there that we could get into. And, you know, it became the next decade of my life, basically. Um, and uh, a lot of incredible experiences and a lot of friends that I still have, obviously, to this day. Um, most of my good friends all come from that era. At Harvard, say, take us to senior year. You're, you're an English major. I noted in my, in my, uh, my Twitter tease of this episode that you've, you've never misplaced a comma. I believe I've been following you on Twitter for 10 years, and I think that's true. You have, you have a way with words that's really quite fantastic. I will, I will say your style is 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 something something to be emulated for sure um so your senior year you're an english major the source is already presumably pretty big at that point what what is your vision for life in your 20s at that moment at that point we had had an office off campus we had built a business and now we're about to graduate we're like what are we going to do now and we knew that the obvious move was for us to be in New York. New York City was the hub and center of hip hop, music and culture. That's what we were about. So we had plans to move to New York um, and you know, we ended up getting a, an office 
at 594 Broadway, which is Broadway in Houston, um, because we, had, we were friends with another hip hop company, a guy named Bill Stephanie, who was one of the producers of Public Enemy. He and Hank Shockley, actually, who's the key producer of Public Enemy, were, were partners in a new venture, and they had an office in right there in the, it's probably the best possible location we could have been in terms of downtown New York City. It's just like in the center of everything, and we were, we got a great space and started small. It was only like a handful of people, and then, of course, it grew. But right at that moment when we were graduating, we knew we had something. We knew it was a business. We weren't getting rich. We, we were paying the bills, you know, maybe making a couple hundred dollars. I mean, if that, most of our money went back into the business and it wasn't a lot. We were selling ads to make money. And, but we knew that there was a future in it for sure. And funny enough, on the day of graduation, a rumor spread that we had sold the business for millions of dollars. I don't know how that rumor started. It was totally not true, but a very prominent Harvard professor came up to me and said, congratulations, I heard you guys did that deal, that's amazing. And I said, what? Like he was the one that told me about a false rumor. And I was like, it was a weird moment, but I knew it, it certainly gave me confidence, you know, for the future. But I remember thinking, wow, what a, I wish it was true, but it wasn't true, you know, at the time. But uh, at any rate, the energy at that moment was all about moving to New York, setting up a, a real, turning this college project that obviously had legs into a real business. Basically, at 22, you're thinking that's that's the radar. That's like my 20s. I'm increasing my footprint in in hip hop. For me, I had been into it since. I mean, I for me, it was 1980 is the first hip hop record, you know, Rapper's Delight. And I was old enough to I was like 11 or 12 and I heard that song and I loved it and that was it. So to me, I was there from the very beginning of the recorded music of hip hop, old, lucky to be old enough just to be there, you know? And so now, you know, there's a decade of hip hop. And actually, this is a little known fact for the source buffs out there, if there are any, um, is that that issue that we published right when we graduated was probably my favorite issue that we ever did. And it was called the source decade in hip hop, 1980 to 1990. And that was the equivalent of my senior thesis like i didn't write a senior thesis because i was so busy with the real you know our business that we were our fledgling business and so um at that mo that is still even though we were so small and it's really just me doing the whole thing with the help of a number of writers but that was my that when i think back that's the one i'm almost most proud of because it's it was like total labor of love and it's packed and packed with information you know, it's really good. It's not a lot of copies out there. So uh, I'm going to try to, go. I'm going to try to find that one. I've seen, I've seen them on eBay for like thousands, you know? So I mean, oh. uh, all right, I'm still, I'm still going to, I'm still going to try to find one. Okay. So take us to the office in the say 1991 in New York. What was 1991? Cause at that point I'm in middle school. So I'm listening to stuff. Middle school people are listening to, which is, and you're on the sophisticated end of the hip hop spectrum. So what are you listening to in 1991? Okay. And that time you would talk about, uh, you mentioned like ice cube was, was huge at that time because he had just gone solo. Um, a lot of New York hip hop. I mean, a lot of New York hip hop, everything from like a uh, brand Nubian, um, you know, tribe called quest, uh, you know, uh, what are there? Just, <laughs> 
KRS-One. KRS-One and Boogie Down Productions were still putting out music. Eric B and Rakim were still hot at that time. Um, Public Enemy, I mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of groups, you know, that, that from that era, uh, you know, but our, interestingly enough, you know, the question does bring up a, a point, which is that we were, as one of the few media outlets that were like attempting to cover hip hop at that moment, we were in a position where we had to be reflecting the whole United States or even the whole world. And that was hard to do because A, we were very New York centric in our tastes, um, just predisposed to be. I mean, I, I really strived to be, I strove to like embrace every kind of hip hop. There was, Texas was starting out like the Ghetto Boys and San Francisco with, you know, um, uh, hieroglyphics and Del the Funky Homo Sapien and then LA was evolving. Obviously Dr. Dre was the leader, but there were all these different things going on all around the country, these little scenes starting up. And it was our job to kind of summarize that whole thing but we're, here we are in the middle of what we call the golden era of hip hop. And that's the New York based golden era. You know, that's where most of the golden era happened. Um, and so our job was to kind of walk that line is to be true to that, which is where our hearts were, but also reflect the whole country. The only other media outlet that was doing that was Yom TV Raps. Yom TV Raps was concurrent with the source. You know, they were actually started around the same time as the source, almost exactly. And so they were, had the same job. They had the same job to kind of reflect everything, you know, it's, 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 but it's easy to just pick a video and play it. It's a lot harder to go into a place, write about, interview people, find the right people to do the writing, you know, just summarize all that. So we, we had a, a, a probably a more difficult task, um, but similar in terms of our, our uniqueness, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of people even attempting it. And that's probably one of the reasons why we were able to do well. Were you guys running it, say, a couple years out? Were you, were you running it, we have the content side and the business side, and we're trying to maximize the business side? Or, or was, there, was it 90% focused on the content, 10% on the business? What, what did that part look like? My job as editor-in-chief was to oversee the content. And Dave Mays, my partner, we actually had four partners that were the original core team. Myself and Dave, along with James Bernard and Ed Young. And basically two of us oversaw the editorial side and two of us oversaw the business side. We all participated in this, you know, the conversations about everything, but in the end I was the editor in chief and Dave was the publisher. So the job of a publisher is to focus on ad sales and circulation, the two revenue streams of, a, of, a, of, a, of, you know, an old school publishing business before the internet and before other technology. So, we were, that was the, that was how the responsibilities on a day to day. But of course we were all young. We we're all learning. We never took any class about how to run a business, how to run a magazine. None of that was even offered. You know, we took a liberal arts education, but you know, we were all, you know, learning as we went along, but in the end day to day, that was how the responsibilities were, were divvied up. Now, is it fair to say that there might've been a, a, a disconnect between the fact that the magazine, as you said, wasn't making all that much money, but the cultural influence was so extreme that you, who you chose to put on the cover might make millions of dollars of difference or might make careers or, or, or not. So there, there must have felt like there was a tension there. 
Yeah, that's a great point. You know, that's often the case with journalism, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times journalists cover people that are like much better off with the coverage than the journalists would be in the sense, you know, that in that sense, we were, you know, of course we were striving to be as successful as we could to, in that point that meant selling ads and selling issues. And someone said, I remember back at the time, yo, the source goes gold every month, you know, and that's an interesting way to think about it in that we, at, at our peak, we were selling hundreds of thousands of issues every month. Record for record to go gold, that's a, considered a big success. Of course, platinum is even bigger success. So it was frustrating to know sometimes that when we were selling hundreds of thousands, we weren't necessarily making the money that would reflect that. But you know, as it went on, we we became a very stable business. Um, you know, for what you can do for a magazine, you know, at that time. So it's so yeah. I mean, there was aspects of that um, of, of that disconnect as the. Uh not to say center, but as as hip hop did shift to be more West Coast centric, it seemed that you were uh, involved with that world. You were knowing the, the players and so forth. Um, is that how did that how did that come about? It was just naturally you were following it from the beginning. Like I said, I mean, my goal was always to connect with the whole. US version of it, you know, when I'm in that seat as editor-in-chief of the source, my job is to cover everybody. So we evolve with the culture. That also, similarly, and maybe even equally as, you know, or even more important is the way hip-hop burst into other verticals like television, film, advertising, um, fashion, you know, all these huge things that that was really what spurred us forward just these the idea that now hip-hop meant all these tv shows about hip-hop all these films all these fashion lines you know you still see um you know what's his name on shark tank you know that guy you know he he started um damon john started fubu and that he came into our office and all that and you know he's one of the guys that from our era you know who made it big obviously and he um you know that's just an that reflecting that, you know, that part of it was really how we grew because that in, in, enabled, enabled us to sell ads to all the film companies, to sell ads to companies that were using rappers in their sponsorships like electronics, sneakers, you know, all of that, soft drinks, you know. So that, that was kind of how we grew. Was that fully a cause for celebration, hip hop? growing or was there a bittersweet aspect to the fact that maybe middle school suburbia is all of a sudden listening to hip hop all day? Did you find that something to be celebrated or did you find that like a little weird all of a sudden that, that all of a sudden it became so big that That's a great Connecticut, question. Connecticut middle school prep kids were like listening to it all day. Was that, any music fan, if you like any alternative music, if you love reggae, if you love punk rock, if you love hip hop, if you love hard rock, if you love metal, whatever, there's always gonna be a time when an artist gets really big and crosses over into the mainstream, into the pop world and all that. And yes, when you're like 16, 17 years old, that makes you mad. But when you're like 20 something, 30 something and above, you don't necessarily get mad anymore because you understand that that's good. 
that's what you want to happen. You know, there is definitely a, a, we all have a 16 year old side of us that, that, that wants the underground thing to stay underground. But nowadays that it's like, we're so far past that now underground commercial, everyone's distributing everything instantly. All those values have changed now, but back then, yes, when I was, when I, the big example is run DMC, you know, run DMC are the most important early hip hop group. And, you know, they changed everything. They, they changed the game for everybody. And when they got big with walk this way, I was mad. I was mad. Just like you're saying, I was angry. I was like, I don't want run DMC. I don't want all these other white kids to love run DMC. Cause I love the real run DMC, not this walk this way, rock and roll version. I love the real, you know, hip hop run DMC. So that I, I definitely understand that feeling. I get it. But now, you know, you got to have to, you know, at the time when we're doing the source, I was already into the more mature mindset of, we want this to happen. This is good. Got it. We want, we want more, we want more exposure. We want more of an audience. We want bigger, you know, that's it. You know, it becomes, it comes naturally if you're in the business, like Vanilla Ice, you know, is considered probably like the worst rapper of all time, right? So at the time, he's the one that's the most, that makes the most people angry, right? I mean, he's not a good rapper. He's a terrible rapper. I'm not a fan, although I have met him. He's a nice guy. I actually like liked him as a person when I met him, but um, he, uh, I could have included him on the weed list too, I just realized. Um, but anyway, he, uh, you know, at the time he was like a joke and he was huge, but everyone's very angry. But believe me, anyone who's in the business would have killed their mother to be able to have him on their label or have him as a manager, you know, to manage him or to be connected, you know, business is business. And so that kind of takes over, I think. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the natural flow. Like it's good for the culture for things to get bigger. And that means more of the culture will happen. And then you kind of come to that understanding. I'm going to jump forward in time and I want, I want you to bridge the gap with highlights. I'm going to jump forward in time because you had the incredible experience of of seeing this happen twice because then in Vegas, you were very early in electronic music. And so take me into how did that, how did that start? What was it like from the very early days to you being director of programming at Win and signing these multi-million dollar contracts? I came out to Vegas in 03 and that was right when um, the nightlife scene was exploding. That wasn't necessarily why I came here, but I did see a lot of potential in that area. And so I started bringing my DJ friends to, to DJ and that was DJ AM, Mark Ronson, Stretch Armstrong, and then a lot of other hip hop guys. Um, and so we lived through like this big boom in like hip hop style DJing also now called open format, you know, whatever you want to call it, but from a hip hop point of view. And then sadly, you know, TJ AM, who was the leader in the field, passed away and that happened in 07. And after that, um, everything changed, you know, it wasn't just him. That wasn't the only reason, but the hip hop sound kind of phased away and like, this dance music, up-tempo, EDM, electronic music, whatever you want to call it, sound, faster tempo, began to take hold. 
And strangely, as the economy tanked, because Vegas got hit really hard when the 08, 09 crash, just like it's getting hit hard right now with this, you know, pandemic, um, and Miami, both those cities get hit the hardest usually when these things happen. Um, but Vegas, right when the crash happened is when EDM started taking hold, taking hold here. So interestingly enough, I believe that EDM and food and beverage nightlife day clubs, bars, you know, that whole sort of category is what saved Vegas during the 08, 09 crash. And at that time, I started working with Wynn um, as a director of programming, meaning that I was the person that was making a lot of the decisions about DJs and music and marketing related to those things. And um, the first the first guys that we brought in there were Steve Aoki, um, who I had met through AM, and um, also Cascade, who turned out, both of them turned out to be incredible. Um, and both of them obviously got bigger and bigger and became huge stars. And that was the beginning. That was like around 2009, 2010. This is when things starting to take off. And then from about 2010 to 2015, we had the EDM golden era. And the EDM golden era is when just like, you know, these giant, mostly European artists slash producers slash DJs emerged, led by some older guard guys like Tiesto. And, but also now we have Avicii and Afrojack and, you know, many, many others, of course, Calvin Harris. And um, that was the era, David Guetta. Um, this is the era of, the EDM golden era, basically. And, and I was right there, you know, watching it, participating in it, um, you know, in the DJ booth as these things happen. And it was huge, man. I mean, Vegas really took off with the music, with electronic music. It's still there. It's still here. You know, it still exists. But that was the just rocket ship up, you know, era. And I don't know where all the money came from because it was supposed to be downswing in the economy but it brought just endless thousands of young partiers willing to spend five or ten thousand dollars on a bottle and all that on table and you know and all that kind of thing and so that that era is no longer with us and not just because of this pandemic um for other reasons too that era is is no longer with us um but that's, you know, it was a great time and I'm glad that I got to see it and, and be part of it. And, you know, again, it's, there's some guys that are still standing and still going strong. Some of them have faded away a little bit, but I mean, that it's, you know, it, it was very intense and it was very fun and it was a lot of good times and, and, and a lot of money was made by everybody. And, you know, so it was, it was a boom time for Vegas and for, for that, for that genre, for sure. Now you have 2000, 10 to 2015 as as the golden era for EDM. As you said, it was it was becoming big in the depths of the financial crisis, which was a very bleak time in Vegas, and that was that was odd. I'm curious to know from your perspective how did you get from the from the depths of the financial crisis to the to the peak of the era where Wynn is signing these huge contracts with EDM stars. I, I can 
what I can remember is I had one close friend from middle school, high school years, middle school years, really from the earliest years who was working like deep in nightclub industry. And he was working in the industry from early 2000s onward. And what I found fascinating was that in the, in the early earliest years of clubs being big in Vegas, say early 2000, early and mid 2000s, there were very few people that were actually paying the high sticker price on bottles. You had a lot of cross promos and comps and the, and it wasn't the $5,000 tables. It was the $500 tables. It went, and this was at a time when Vegas was extremely prosperous. So then around 2007, all of a sudden things had 2006, 2007, things had kicked up to higher dollar amounts and bigger things. And then as the crisis hit, you would have expected when Vegas room rates went from uh, $500, $700 a weekends to $100, you would have thought that the clubs would have gone down. But as you said, they, they became bigger. But then uh, you would think that something as unsustainable as $5,000 tables, that might only last a year or so, but it, it grew bigger and bigger over the course 2010, 2015. How, how did that happen in your mind? You know, it's interesting. I've thought about this, you know, during, during the uh, depression, the, you know, the entertainment industry flourished, actually. The, during the depression, the film industry flourished. People say in history books, it was because people, that people wanted escapism. Um, now, it's different when the escapism costs $15,000 versus, you know, a buck or 50 cents or whatever, you know, a movie costs in, 19, in the 1930s. But, um, you know, there is some parallel there. Um, it also just is the creative sort of the, the X factor of like what's in the zeitgeist, where people's tastes are musically. It's, it's kind of like a pendulum swinging back and forth and it's swung into this up-tempo typically 128 beats per minute, which is sort of the ground zero of like EDM. So that tempo, that beat, that, that pace is what people were drawn to. There's also some studies, and I actually did a little bit of this research myself into how financial downswings make the music go faster and then financial upswings make the music get slower. Like you'll notice this past, since, you know who got elected, you know, and the, the stock market was flourishing the last couple of years, you know, not right this second, or I guess today it was, but, you know, before the crash, um, when the stock market was flourishing, the music was getting super slow, super like dreary slow, like all the hip hop, like slowed down to this like 70 beats per minute. There's this weird correlation between mm. when you think, you know, the market is telling you one thing and then the, the music is telling you the opposite. I don't know why that is. I've, I'm still sort of thinking about that. Um, but why did this happen in the big picture? You know, it's a, it's, it was that Vegas was in the right, found the right thing, the perfect product to offer. And mainly to people that could come here quickly, like driving here, like California residents, people on the West Coast, you know, it became this beacon of, this is exactly what we want. And at the time when the music creatively, these guys were, 
making hits by themselves, typically working all on electronic, you know, electronic producers work in a electronic environment, typically just on a laptop, you know, and they sit in their house or their studio and make a song on a laptop, get their, pack up their laptop and their USB stick, come to Vegas and play that. You know, it's just kind of this very efficient model. And as the songs were getting bigger and bigger, you know, primarily driven by YouTube, I'd say, this was before Spotify had really caught on the way it is now. Um, this would just drive, and the social media. I mean, also like those guys that were good at marketing themselves on social media got bigger and bigger too. Um, so, you know, a, a confluence of factors led to an unexpected boom in dance music and Vegas was where it happened. And uh, EDC coming here was another, another factor. Um, you know, it just became the place where this happened. And there was a point around, I think it was 13 or 14 that when we were at Wynn that we signed, I think 45 resident DJs that year. That's crazy. 45, you know. That's insane. Yeah, it was like, that was the peak. That was the moment. And then after that, actually all those people, all those artists, producers, DJs scattered. And that's kind of when Hakkasan came up and other nightlife companies started infringing on Wynn's position as the dominant. They're still the dominant. Wynn is still the best brand for hospitality nightlife in terms of that, that segment. But, you know, other companies started to infringe on it. And then all those, and we all knew that this was only going to be like a one year thing and that we all kind of anticipated. And I must give credit while we're talking about this to Sean Christie, who has been my friend and, and mentor and, and sort of partner and every just, just a, a great force in this whole thing. He was, he's the guy that really made it happen at Wynn. And I was like alongside him. So he's the person that, that, that envisioned this giant thing really more than anybody. So I give credit to him and Jesse Waits who also was at Wynn at that time, kind of running the nightlife division. Um, but yeah, along the way we got, it was huge and a lot of factors contributed, but it was great while it lasted. You know, the other thing is that it's not really sustainable. And the big example of that is chaos at Palms, which was a giant multi, you know, hundred million dollar nightclub project that went bust uh, very quickly after it opened, like in less than six weeks or two months from opening it, it, it went bust. And that is the, that marks probably the, the end of that. The end of the mega mega club where it feels, I mean, it feels awkward if like it's 30% full cause it's such a big spectacle. Right. Now post pandemic, everything's off the table. Everything's different, but I'm just saying before the pandemic, this was already happening. There already was a trend away from the big overpriced DJ artist and more towards a mid-size lounge, dining, more cool, laid-back nightlife experience. That's where things are heading. Before the pandemic and after the pandemic, I feel, is that's where things are going. It's no longer about this giant guy and you have to spend like all this money and all that stuff. It's more about, you know, a more, just a, a cooler, low, more low-key experience. I feel like that's where things are heading. Um, and we'll continue to head. Uh, take us to medium. I love, I love the model of longer form. Um, would would like to spend more time at medium m myself. 
uh, I'm a victim of short attention spans like everyone else. Um, but so take us to medium. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the great things that happened during my time at the win is I got exposed to all these tech executives and people who I really was, you know, admired. And one of them, Ev Williams was, you know, he's very well known um, as the founder of Twitter and blogger um, was starting a new thing uh, called medium. And we, uh, you know, he told me about it very early and it evolved a bit. And I think about a year into its life, I ended up going over and temporarily moving to San Francisco um, to work there and to help build up the editorial side of Medium. Um, and for about a year and a half, I was overseeing a, I was there full time overseeing a music publication called Q Point, but also um, just in general shaping like how they, how they dealt with, you know, user generated content and different aspects of how the editorial engine there worked. Um, in that, you know, he has, the company has pivoted multiple times since then. Um, I'm no longer there full time. I, I still have a great connection and relationship with them. Over the last three or four years, I've been doing something else, which I'll tell you about. Um, but uh, Medium and QPoint, and, you know, and Medium in general are both great. And I, I'm a huge fan of it. And they actually have arrived after having pivoted the business model a couple of times, I think now at the right business model, which is they charge a $5 membership fee for behind the paywall. And as a publisher, you can publish in either side, you know, for free or behind the paywall. And it's, it seems to be working. And, you know, uh, kind of the same things, they've kind of come full circle back to where, when I was there, like after, after me, they've pivoted away from doing publications and they, they they've tried multiple models, ad based, subscription based, you know, this is on the business side. Creatively, it's continued to kind of build a great, great presence as a, um, a place for longer form, but a place to just publish as an individual or as a publication or whatever, whatever, as a, as a, as a, an organization, as a charity, as a school, as it can be a lot of so many things. And that I think is why it's been kind of a slow build for medium. It hasn't been like a hockey stick up to the top because it's, it's this very big thing that kind of can be multiple things at the same time. And a lot of people don't grasp that at first. And even during the couple of years that I was very hard, heavily working on it, you know, it, take, it takes a while for people to understand what it is and, and what it can be. But I think now it has really proven itself and it, it seems to be on its most um, solid footing right now as both content-wise and business-wise. I love medium. It is, it is fighting that battle against shortening attention spans though. And so if you have, if you have Twitter and you think you could have gone in, in one of two directions towards, towards longer form content in the way of medium or towards even shorter bursts like Instagram, we, or TikTok or whatever, we, we went in the direction of even shorter bursts. Cause that's just the way people's minds are going. Uh, yes. And, and that was apparent even back when he was launching it, when Ev was launching it, like it, he knows, I mean, he's the guy that he was, he's the master of 
creating, putting a box out there and letting other people fill it in and figuring out how to make that work. Okay. And he already knew that he was going against the grain, but he saw something different. He still sees something different. Yes. We all know that the short attention span is definitely, you know, a huge draw from, for a lot of people, including us. We like to get the info, you know, especially if it's the kind of info that can be boiled down. Um, but look, thank God medium exists. Thank God there's something that is going against the grain that gives you a chance to go deeper and, and to explore these things. Also, let's be said that the New York Times is also at its peak right now. The New York Times, both editorially and financially, is at its peak. I mean, it is the biggest pub journalism platform in the world, and it is doing incredible work every single day all around the world. And it also has found a way to make money with online subscriptions. So that is the model, really. You know, that, but that, the medium is sort of the people's version of that. You know, it's for everyone else. So I think I'm bullish on those two media properties, I guess. New York Times and Medium. We haven't talked a lot about poker. I got exposed to poker in the mid-90s, um, living in New York City at the Mayfair Club. Most people know as the, the Rounders fictional, uh, made, you know, fictionalized, but it's the real basis for the movie Rounders. Um, and the Mayfair Club had all the legends of poker from um, at that time, like Howard Lederer and, and many others um, who played there. Um, but I got, you know, I just kind of, I guess I always had it in me to, I just like, you know, I enjoy games that involve skill and money, you know? So I just was drawn to it and I was, um, learned, you know, the hard way, just like everyone else, but over, uh, uh, you know, over a period of time, I was, you know, here in, here in Vegas during, you know, I guess when we met was probably my most avid poker time, which was the early 2000s, you know, late nineties, early 2000s, especially at Bellagio. Also corresponded to the most fun time to play poker in poker history. I, the most fun years in poker, well, 2003 through 2000, end of 2007, those were the most fun years. And you can make cases for any of those years, but probably like late 04 through World Series 06. That would be like peak, peak. And to me, I think in terms of just most interesting characters, most interesting situations. So I should mention just as a point that Brian Koppelman who, and David Levine, who are the writers of Rounders, are good friends of mine. I used to play Heads Up, No Limit with Brian Koppelman in his office when he was working, doing A&R for a record label, for a big corporate record label. And he, I took him down to Mayfair and he met some of the characters that, um, you know, populated that place, including a lot of very interesting, funny and oddball and interesting, you know, crazy people. And one of them was a guy named Joel Bagels, um, who was just an amazing person, rest in peace. And Brian went a couple of times and was an extremely aggressive, no limit hold'em player. He would play like every hand to the end, but, you know, like any aggressive player would have the big swings up and down and was always a great sport and everyone loved him. For, obviously, that's who you love, right? That's, every, that's the best player everyone wants to see in any game. So he hit it off real fast. Like I took him down there maybe a handful of times 
he started hitting it off with everybody. He disappeared for a month and came back and he hands me a script and it's rounders. So credit to him for being able to just take that probably a few weeks of, of experience and turn it into like this iconic movie. Uh, that's, un that's unbelievable. And, and so am I right that, um, that Mike is the main character, right? In the, yeah. In, in Routers, that it's Huck Seed, although Huck Seed wasn't really playing in New York at the time so much, right? But, but it was based on Huck Seed? No, I took Huck to Mayfair a couple times, actually. Um, but he, back then, I mean, um, that character is kind of an amalgamation of a few different people. Brian himself, I think, because he went to law school. So remember, there's a whole law school side of it. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was just a fictional character. It's not really based on any one person, but um, they did have Eric Seidel was a consultant at the time. Um, a few other poker players were, were, were around the production and were consultants and stuff like that. But there weren't a lot of, um, I don't, I mean, I can't say that there was any one person, um, but, but, but of course, Joey Kanish is based on Joel Bagels. That much is very clear. And also, What's his name? Teddy KGB? Or what's the... I, I yeah, can't Teddy KGB. Teddy KGB is the fictional one. And the real one is... There's a, oh, why am I blanking right now? But there's a real Teddy KGB also. But that was a great time. I mean, you know, there was... These were in a gray area. Like, but the Mayfair was a nice place. You would go and you'd, you could get a massage. You would get a nice meal. There were pool tables. There were TVs. It was like... It was a nice place to play poker, but it was, you know, they had great security also, so they never really had any problems. But a lot of the other places that were trying to be like the Mayfair, they ended up always getting robbed or things like that would happen. So it was a, it was a wild time living in, you know, that, that poker scene at that time. Um, but yeah, fast forwarding to the, the prime time, which was like those early 2000s at, at Bellagio, that was when I really enjoyed it the most for sure. And I, I was playing damn near every day. I was mostly playing 10, 20, no limit. Um, and uh, it was awesome. I love, I love those days. That was, th th that era, the difference between then and now was at the poker table, you would, you would meet such outrageous people. Like the, the characters were so much more colorful at that time. Right. And many different styles of play. I think now, like, I don't know, you, I don't play very often anymore. I play occasionally, but it seems like everyone is, we're kind of in a different phase strategically. Like back then there was all these different styles kind of happening, but now does it, am I wrong that this seems to be more like everyone's trying for like a certain style of play and it's less, it's less variety or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, I don't no, know that's that. true. There's definitely been a convergence and that, that is just a function of we have a static game. Naturally we're going to learn about it. And now we have computing power applied as well, which means that poker is becoming somewhat trivialized over time. And yeah, it's poker is never going to be the same. We're, we've got to the point where not that we're going to know the solutions, but it's certainly possible that five years from now, everyone plays with their computerized glasses and knows exactly what to do in every situation and just does it. Wait, what year was the moneymaker? 2003. Right. So that was the, that was the boom time, right? So that's the golden era of poker. Let's call it that since that's the theme of today. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I agree. That was a great time. 
And there was a lot more money sloshing around, I think. A lot more loose money sloshing around at those levels. Now when I play, I play smaller. I play 2-5 or sometimes 5-10, but I, I feel like it's, yeah. I mean, the, also, by the way, 10-20 now is a pretty really big game now. It got way bigger. When I would play, I would buy in for like a few thousand dollars. Now I see people sitting with like 30 or 50K in 10-20. So I wouldn't want to do that. And what was possible in terms of winning money was much different back then. You could have win rates that were pretty outrageous by today's standard. Today, those people playing 10-20 are trying to make a few big blinds per hundred hands. It's not, yeah. it's, not the same, it's not the same game as it was. So take me to the present. Okay, so for the last uh, three plus years, I've been working um, with a new music platform called Playback Prodigy. And what we do is provide music, background music for many high-end resorts, casinos, restaurants, lounges, uh, fitness centers, uh, retail stores, et cetera, et cetera. So this began almost as a hobby also. Um, basically, while I was in San Francisco working with Medium, someone at one of the major casino resorts, Aria, contacted me and said, hey man, our music sucks. Can you please help us? And I said, you know, even though I worked with Wynn and I worked with casinos for over a decade at that point, um, I had never focused on that exact niche, although I had thought a lot about it. Of course, I'd heard it every day. And I said, you know what? I'm sure I could, let me figure it out. So I started helping them out with music um, in different ways. First in the form of DJ mixes and then later with individual songs and first using other people's software. And then a partner and I came together, another a guy who's a DJ and a technology guy. Um, and we decided to build our own. So we built our own platform um, and started using it first at Aria. Um, and then people loved it. And we started spreading all around the MGM world and then many restaurants and, and just, you know, uh, other casinos, other properties, other companies. We also work closely with Wynn and Encore, and now we're at the point where we deploy um, what we call our multi-channel, which is a, a large server, like a $5,000 computer that goes into the resort, and it serves up like 56 channels simultaneously where we're in every restaurant, we're in, every, we're in the gym, we're at the pool, we're in the lobby. So we're basically programming music is you know, kind of what I'm doing full-time now. Um, it's a great... It's exactly what I want to do because I can do it from anywhere. Uh, I, I mean, of course, I, I, it's great to visit the customers and to be around the, the spaces that we're working on. But when it comes to the maintenance and updating of it, it's all done online and, and it's all, it's great. It's, it's a great niche to be in. So last question. I want to know the music industry post-COVID, they, um, they had evolved to a model that was focused on touring. And now uh, live concerts are going to be out for a bit. And I guess, as I understand it, there was a, um, a revolt in the early years of digital music because artists weren't being paid as much as, as they previously were. But, but then uh, artists became somewhat okay with it because the touring revenues were high. 
and now maybe no, no touring. So how do you see it in the next uh, year or two? You're right in that the music, the, the healthiest part of the music industry pre-COVID was live entertainment, live music. Um, that includes DJs. Um, and now, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing this huge shift into streaming um, of music. So, I mean, live streaming of live performances of music. Um, meanwhile, it does appear that Spotify et al, you know, Spotify, Tidal, iTunes, um, and Apple Music, and, and a handful of others are beginning to help the labels turn the corner. It, it, it's strangely, right now, labels are hot again. Um, labels were taking a beating for, for many years because they were very slow to adapt to new technology, but because many of them have ownership stakes in Spotify, it's actually enabled them to turn everything around. And Spotify, it should be noted, gives out a lot of money to labels, artists, publishers, rights holders. Um, they don't make any money. Spotify is not a money-making company, but it has accrued billions of dollars in value for the, for the stakeholders anyway. So it's an interesting paradox. So since uh, yeah. you're in the industry, you can't go so far as to... Uh to knock down the, the big four that, cause presumably I don't know the business very well, but presumably what is happening is you have Spotify, which is sort of the customer's favorite. And I must imagine the music lover's favorite. And then you have the, the gorillas like uh, Amazon and, and Apple just trying to win it. And because they win all the battles, they'll probably win or at least substantially hold their ground in what should be Spotify's area. So, No, you're right. I, I prefer Spotify personally, like you're saying. Um, I've always thought that Apple had, had a real chance to win the battle in the long run. Um, now it's becoming a little less clear. They're going to probably share being the two biggest. Amazon is mostly offering their music as a, an add-on for Prime customers. So it's, it's interesting. Their strategies almost give it away. Um, and there's a few others like Tidal who are making a, you know, fighting it out. Um, but yeah, the music industry was pre COVID turning the corner after a very long time heading in the wrong direction. The music industry as a whole was getting stronger in the quarters leading up to COVID. Um, so it's very interesting to see what the future holds, you know, on one hand, all the Spotify stuff, you would think that would go up. Right. You would think that people have more time to click on a link and stream music now than they did before. Initial numbers did not follow that, however. Initial numbers showed a dip in music streaming, but a rise in like Netflix and stuff like that. I don't know whether that's still true now. That was like early on in the quarantine. But it is it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I do think the most interesting thing that's happening is, as I said, this new frontier of live performances online and what that means and how do you make money from it? Can people make money from it? The rights issues around it are very frustrating because um, when DJs are playing, a lot of times their feeds get taken down, but we have to work that out. There's still, there's still some issues, um, but there are artists um, who are performing for money and getting people to pay. So that the beginning of a new thing seems to be happening. And so that's the most, that's kind of the headline. The headline is, will this quarantine lead to a new, mo a new business model for live entertainment that 
allows everyone to just be at home and still enjoy music. Um, it's also happening with nightclubs, by the way. There are a handful of very early now nightlife venues beginning to use Zoom and other software to be like, to come to the party, you come to a Zoom party and everyone dresses up, everyone kind of plays along and it becomes like a social experience, but you're sitting at home. So that is the most interesting piece of it. Can we evolve as consumers and participants in the music ecosystem, you know, to basically just be satisfied with that? Is that enough? Will we pay for that? Will we pay for the right to, right now, 98% of them are doing it for free. Like most of these artists are just giving it away. <clears throat> that, that, that's not sustainable, but um, you know, so these are the questions. So that is the part that's the most exciting as far as what might develop out of this. Well, man, I've loved this. We've set my record for the longest ever podcast. It's going to be great. Really enjoyed this. Hopefully we continue the conversation over dinner and late summer whenever uh, Vegas reasserts itself. I can't wait to see you here, man. All right. I'll chat with you soon. Right. Now, is there, is there anyone, is there, are there any last words for, for our viewers and listeners? You know what? Um, the best role in music is to actually to be a fan. I've played a lot of roles. I've played every role you can play, basically. And the one that I enjoy the most is being a fan. It's just listening and enjoying it. And so I just wanted to share that because I think that, you know, that's one of the pleasures of life. I, you know, music is the greatest thing that I know to kind of, you know, feel good. So everyone listen to more music. I love it. All right. I'll see you soon. Peace.